Have you ever heard of the Gnostics? Is that when you're not sure if God exists? Like, not quite an atheist? No. You know, Jesus' disciples, they all wrote Gospels, right? But they didn't all make it into the Bible. The church only wanted the ones that told the story they were trying to tell. Didn't know that. Well, same goes for all history. Same goes for your brain. What do you mean? Our brains are just computers that make our life stories make sense. It's from the Demiurge. Is mm-hmm. the Demiurge related to the Overmind? No, I think the Demiurge is like a negative expression of but the But created the universe? How did the Overmind get in there to be running the... Earth, at least. Well, I think of the overmind as the logos. You know, it's the it's the understanding and self-existence which permeates everything. And the demiurge <laughs> is the force of matter and time and cosmic destiny that is always trying to lock in the logos and condition it and make it subject to the rules of the of the physical universe of space and time. And the Logos is like something from... This is all Gnostic theology, by the way. This is just straight from the book. The Logos is trying to struggle through the labyrinth of the material universe to escape, to rejoin the real source of itself, which is outside of matter. Matter is viewed as an entrapment. Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. You just heard a clip from the Netflix series Manic, starring Emma Stone and Jonah Hill, followed by the spot-on take of Terrence McKenna. Altogether a bit long, but this is a special show where we'll focus all energy in understanding Gnosticism including novel insights on its teachings, impact, and origins, all from cutting-edge scholarship from our astral guest, Dr. James McGrath, prolific author and Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature at Butler University. We turn up the infernal heat and shine a valis light on the Gnostics and their contraband truths, that are more necessary than ever. I can't remember who said this, and apologies, but this line explains the show's ethos well in 2020. Hermes may have been the god of thieves, but Sophia should get credit as the goddess of smugglers. You no trouble. Me, fifth element. Supreme being. Me, protect you. So welcome to Aeon Bytenostic Radio. We don't take prisoners, but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything, but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. You are the final authority, have always been, and it's time you stop denying your potential. We run with those searching for the truth and avoid those who have found it. Welcome, you generation without a king, you Johnny Cash Bodhisattvas, you modern-day Tom Sawyers, your mind not for rent to any god or government. 
I am still Miguel Connor, your pompous of gnosis. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skylar. I am the danger. Together with our sister Sophia, we are smuggling those contraband truths, that gnosis that includes the magic of Simon Magus, the fury of Anat, the trickery of Hermes, and the ecstasy of Abraxas. Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. We must because 2020 has been the year Yaldi Baldi has brought down his galactic nutsack upon the consciousness of humanity, castrated all individuality, and fisted into oblivion the dreams of younger generations. But here we are, at the end of the world, we Nosticoi in the battlefield of the True Seeker Warrior with armies of mind parasites, egregores, and alien robots named Pandora bearing down upon us. It's an honor to die at your side. It's an honor to lift at yours. This may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake. And eternity hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there for your taking, for us. We veterans of a thousand psychic wars. We're only getting started as we bootleg those contraband truths given to us by the god of thieves and the goddess of smugglers. Hell, I'm going to grant you the greatest wish. I'm going to show you a world without sin. The Archons have made an entire population feel helpless, you see. They have taken from the common man so much power, like Yaldabaoth took the power of Pistis Sophia in the Gnostic Gospels, and then turned us against each other. And now people fight over shit like mass statues and useless elections. Don't you see? Don't you see that high above, the powers and principalities laugh at us because they hoard most of our power? They've won, and civilization handed it all to them because it was just easier to trade a walk-on part in the war for a lead role in a cage. Your heroes for ghosts. The illusion of freedom will continue as long as it's profitable to continue the illusion. At the point where the illusion becomes too expensive to maintain, they will just take down the scenery They will move the chairs and tables out of the way. And you will see the brick wall at the back of the theater. Don't you see? As Bertrand Russell said, few people can be happy unless they hate some other person, nation, or creed. But you came to the virtual Alexandria because you saw, you knew, you knew that the game is won by going inward, by writing your own gospel and living your own myth. Or as James True said recently, This is not a battle of good versus evil. This is a battle of you against the lack of you. Don't let them hide more of you. Take your power back, bitches. A negative. I am a meat popsicle. In the book 1984, 
O'Brien tells Winston that power isn't a means, but an end. Power is the end. Power is their drug. Your soul is their nectar. We should be ruling the humans. For fuck's sake, these people are our food. You gotta tell them, Silent Green is people! Don't you see? They have made the world feel powerless and stole its power. The game was never to have robots take your jobs, but to turn you into a robot. Politicians, by definition, were never meant to change the country, only manage the status quo. And you can say the same for all the servants of the demiurge in the material world. Don't you see? No candidate is going to save you. No organization or creed is going to give you your authentic, free self. Only the contraband truths of the Gnostics will. That ancient Gnosis, that anarchic thunder that will finally make you choose ecstasy over entertainment. As Philip K. Dick wrote, The true measure of man is not his intelligence or how high he rises in this freak establishment. No, the true measure of a man is this, how quickly he can respond to the needs of others and how much of himself he can give. The third principle of sentient life is its capacity for self-sacrifice, for a cause, a loved one, for a friend. The research of James McGrath in the interview parallel much of what I've just said all based on his work, Didi Devil Demiurge, the shared origins of monotheism, evil, and Gnosticism. He will reveal much about the Gnostics and the way they rebelled thousands of years ago, hid primordial gods and goddesses, and critiqued power without flinching. He'll reveal the importance of the Mandeans, history's great fallen heroes, and the uncompromising mysticism of other Gnostic sects. You are discarded. You are the refuse of the past. Believe me, the sooner we're off the planet, the better. His work certainly jives with the recent interview I did with Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince on Simon, Magus, and Ellen. Check it out. And as a bonus for patrons and AV Prime members, I'll include a past interview with Andrew Phillips Smith based on his book. John the Baptist and the Last Gnostics, so you can get a complete picture of the Mandeans. Witness the wonders of an ancient glory. I'll end with a quote from April DeConnick on the fall of Sophia, which I feel is important because that ancient Gnosis tell us we fell with her and we continue to fall with her. Philip K. Dick said the empire never ended, and Terence McKenna said Rome falls nine times every hour. In between, in between this Babylon con, as Robert Anton Wilson called it, here we are, you and I, in that one point in eternal time against the empire's hologram, crusading for the restoration of all divinity. What the ancient Hebrews were to Egypt and the early Christians were to Rome, we are now to this corrupt new American empire. It's an ancient fight, Nick. The values of the individual against the supremacy of the state. Here is the quote. 
All was well in the eternal realm until Sophia, one of the divinities, was born. Because Sophia is the goddess of wisdom, she did what came naturally to her. She tried to know the Father. But this was impossible, given the nature of the Father is unknowable and that He is embraced by the Silent Mother. Mother is the name for God on the lips and hearts of all children. So Sophia found herself in a quandary. She couldn't know the Father, but because she is wisdom, she couldn't stop trying. So she suffered horribly, constantly yearning for what she could not have. Anxiety plagued her. Tears of terror and repentance erupted. Her love for the Father spilled forth. According to the Valentinian understanding of the story, Sophia's plight is comparable to that of the woman with the flow of blood in the Gospel story. The woman represents the hemorrhaging of the Divine Spirit. Sophia's outpouring emotion, passion, desire, fear, anxiety, remorse, became the building blocks of the psychic and material dimensions of the universe. Her love for God became the human spirit trapped in the human psyche and body. The tragedy of the story is not the fallen mixture of the spirit into the psychic and material dimensions of reality, as we might expect. The tragedy is the inevitability of all of this, of a ruptured God whose ennoble nature leads to unstoppable existential damage. We are the way we are, broken, not because we have done awful things, but because God is the way God is broken. You see, the thing is, Brian, that God is a hateful God. Must be. Because if God is good, then why is the evil in the world? Why is the pain and hate and greed and war? Doesn't make sense. But if God is a nasty bastard, then you can say, why is the good in the world? Why is the love and hope and joy? Well, let's face it, good exists in order to be fucked up by evil. The very existence of good enables evil to flourish. Therefore, God is bad. And it doesn't matter how many past or future existences you have, because they're all going to be riddled with grief and anguish and sickness and death. You see, Brian, God doesn't love you. God despises you. So there's no hope. And mankind is just a component of the device by which the devil creates itself. You with me? You see, what I'm saying basically is you can't make an omelette without cracking a few eggs and humanity is just a cracked egg. And the omelette stinks. This is the Aeon Bide interview, and with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by James McGrath. James, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me as a guest on your show today. Pleasure is all ours, and we'll be discussing a very fascinating paper you did, uh, really struck home, and as we talked before the interview, something that is uh, red meat or maybe red gnosis for our audience, so it's going to be a lot of fun. But with us, too, we've got Vance the Moondog. Vance, how are you doing? 
I'm okay this bright morning uh, out here in California. Looking forward to dissecting the Demiurge. <laughs> yeah, he always needs some help. And uh, again, the paper was so insightful, eye-opening. I was like, uh, uh, for the audience, I do follow James's blog on Pathios. And I noticed uh, he was talking about his paper called Deity Devil Demiurge, The Shared Origins of Monotheism, Evil, and Gnosticism, which he was going to present at the Enoch Seminar. When I read it, it, uh, it opened a lot of eyes, and I saw some amazing insights. But James, would you tell the audience how you decided to write this paper, maybe a little bit about the Enoch Seminar, which in itself is very fascinating. I've been following it these last few weeks. Sure. So let me start with the Enoch Seminar, uh, just because the organization and its name uh, may not be familiar to everyone. It began as a way of exploring the Enochic literature, uh, but it has branched out from there. But from the outset, its mission, and that has remained true even as it's broadened its scope, has been to interpret earliest Christianity as a phenomenon within the Judaism of that time period. So in other words, to get away from the tendency to look back and superimpose, even when we're aware that it's a, a problematic frame, the idea of two distinct religions, right? That really what we're dealing with is religious diversity within Judaism, at least initially. And so that's, that's the organization and they often put together conferences focused either on particular literature, say the Gospel of John, its depiction of Jesus, Paul and his letters, things like that, and sometimes on specific themes. And the theme this time was evil. And evil, well, there's a lot you can say about evil. It's a pretty good opening for all sorts of papers. <laughs> yeah. But it seemed like a perfect venue to finally write up and try out some ideas that I'd been floating by people. Uh, both academics as well as some others, in a much more informal way, and had been looking to forward to actually getting out there in conference paper form and eventually in print to see see what the reaction would be. And this research area came about by way of another interest, which in order to introduce it to your listeners, I might do just as well to tell them how I ended up studying Gnosticism and related things. Yeah, that'd be great. Please do. So I started out uh, in the field of New Testament, early Christianity, uh, looking at the portrait of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And of course, if you study the Gospel of John, sooner or later you encounter the possibility that it may have some connection with Gnosticism, debates about whether Gnosticism is a phenomenon that's earlier and influences that gospel or is subsequent and is inspired by that gospel and possibly some other configurations of how the relationship might stand. More specifically, one encounters a particular Gnostic group, the Mandaeans. And I was aware of them. You learn about them even if they're not really germane to the specific research you're doing. If you dive deeply into the Gospel of John and the history of scholarship, then you learn that in the first part to middle of the 20th century, it was a very common approach in certain circles to take 
Mandaean literature, Mandaean ideas, and slot them into the background of the Gospel of John and interpret John against that background and that framework. The reason for that is that the Mandaeans themselves are this fascinating Gnostic group that has a positive view of John the Baptist. And how shall I put this? A not so positive view of Jesus um, in their <laughs> literature. Although that's not necessarily something that is articulated by the average Mandaean today. And of course, one of the things that makes this arguably the most fascinating Gnostic tradition is the fact that it exists today. And so you can talk with adherents of this religion, you can watch their religious rituals. It used to be that you had to travel to Iraq or Iran to see a Mandaean baptism. Now you just have to go on YouTube and type in their name and add the word baptism and you're guaranteed to have several, several examples of it. And so I was aware of this group uh, as a result of my studies in the Gospel of John, but didn't really focus on it. Then once I began teaching at Butler University, I was encouraged to explore and develop courses in areas that were at the very least a little bit of a stretch beyond my normal teaching area. And one of those was focused on extra canonical early Christian literature and Gnosticism. I just call the course heresy because students browsing through a catalog are much more likely to have their exactly. eye grabbed by that. And so far it's worked pretty well. The enrollments have been pretty good. But as I was putting together a list of readings, what do I want to assign to students? There were some that were obvious. And that's when I took another look at the Mandaean tradition and its texts and realized in a way that I hadn't really been cognizant of previously that their two most important sacred texts had never been translated into English in their entirety. Uh, that's the Great Treasure and the Book of John. And so to make a long story short, uh, I'm happy to go into more detail, but I attended a conference about the Mandaeans, uh, made contact with other scholars working in this area, and with one of them put together a grant proposal to work on translating the Mandaean Book of John into English in its entirety from the original texts and from the full array of texts that are known to us. And so this project in and of itself really opened up all sorts of exciting avenues of research and discovery. It has begun to invigorate my New Testament scholarship in interesting ways. And one of my next big research projects is going to be to look at the historical figure of John the Baptist and ask whether Mandaean sources can contribute to that investigation and in what way. But one of the things that Mandaean texts basically tantalizingly suggest as a possibility has to do with the origins of Gnosticism. And that's really what I wanted to explore in this specific conference paper. And I assume that your listeners may be interested in hearing the gist, at least, of what I was arguing in the paper, and then we can we can dig into some of the details in a question and answer sort of way, if you like. Yes, please do. Let us know. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, share with us about the paper, and thanks for what you're doing. And we certainly look forward to your future work on John the Baptist and uncovering more about uh, the Mandeans and the rich tradition that's been so, as you have right, is overlooked. But uh, yeah, please, James, let us know about the paper. 
Sure. So one thing I will say, uh, lest I forget later on, is that uh, while there is a very expensive critical edition translation and commentary uh, format of the Book of John, now published by uh, de Gruyter, uh, there is an open access version of just the raw Mandaic text and the translation that people who are interested in this tradition can find online. And so you will be able to explore this text in ways that you haven't before. And if listeners who are interested in this, as I know many of them are, haven't found out that that is available yet, I want to make sure I direct them to it. Very nice. Very cool. But one of the big questions, yeah, one of the big questions, as I'm sure your listeners are probably aware by now, is where does Gnosticism come from? And how does it come about? If you read Gnostic literature from ancient times, whether it's Sethian literature discovered at Nag Hammadi in Egypt, whether it's Mandaean literature, they trace their origins back to Adam and to the you know, antediluvian patriarchs and things like that, which from a historian's perspective doesn't really help answer the question when this appears in the historical record, what prompted it? Right? Because ancient religion, everybody is claiming they go back to Adam, right? Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so what leads to this specific configuration? And that's always been a puzzle. Does it have its origins in Judaism? Does it emerge only as a result of Christianity or in response to Christianity? Is it primarily you know, Platonism and uh, Jewish exegesis interacting with Platonism? Is it something else? All kinds of debates and discussions about this. You wouldn't think that bringing the Mandaeans into the picture would make things clearer because their origins are every bit as mysterious, maybe more so, right? Uh, the copies of their texts that we have are much later than the ones that were discovered at Nag Hammadi. And where they come from seems like as much of a mystery, maybe more. But there are some details in these texts that are very suggestive. As I was studying these texts, uh, even before this particular way of approaching this question came to mind, I saw evidence in them, in the stories they told, in the kinds of language they use and other things, the focus that they have. There seemed to be a strong case for this emerging in some way, shape, or form out of Judaism. In the Nag Hammadi texts, of course, you find clear evidence that they are engaging with the story of creation as told in Genesis. That's a major focus. However, they don't like the creator God depicted in Genesis. And that's really where the puzzle lies, right? Because if you are a Jewish interpreter of Genesis as scripture, you probably have a lot that will motivate you to like the creator God that is depicted in the scripture. Yes, of course, right? <laughs> if you are from outside of the Jewish tradition, you have no particular reason to focus on the Jewish God as this malevolent creator. And so who would have the motivation to do this and yet also the, the motivation to do the one and yet also the motivation to do the other? In Mandayan sources, it's not simply that the creator figure has you know, clear allusions to Genesis. 
This figure is called Adonai. And so that term is familiar to anyone who's familiar with Judaism. Uh, it's the word for Lord in Hebrew. It is used as a substitute for the divine name. Uh, and the Sophia-like figure uh, is called Ruha, Ruha de Kudsha, which means Holy Spirit. And so the resonances with the biblical tradition in Mandaism are much stronger and much more direct on the linguistic level. And there are also things that resonate with early Christianity. Uh, flowing water, which is the kind of water that has to be used for baptism, is living water in Aramaic. And in Mandaic, that is, that is the phrase that's used. But coming back to the connections with Judaism, there are also some names that appear in Mandaian literature for light world beings, for beings in the celestial realm, for what you know, the, the Greek tradition and Greek influence tradition might call archons, uh, the emanations from the one supreme source, that have names that are resonant with and seem to derive from pre-exilic Israelite religion. So you have variations on the name Yah with an additional epithet. So there's a figure, Yorba, which seems to come from Yah Reba, right? So Yah the Great. There's, um, yeah, there's uh, Yoshimin, which is Yah of Heaven, right? There are multiple variations of this sort. And so that got me thinking, what's the connection with this pre-exilic Israelite religiosity? And that's when this possibility really struck me that this tradition could emerge and the engagement with the Jewish scriptures as well as the rejection of its monotheistic type of identification of the supreme God with the creator, these could emerge in a tradition that comes out of those Israelites who resisted the imposition of the Jewish scriptures of monotheism after the exile. If we look at the places where Gnosticism seems to flourish and thrive and be associated with for the most part, it's particularly Egypt and Mesopotamia. Right? The Mandaeans are in Mesopotamia. It, the uh, Nagamadi texts come from Egypt. And we know that there was Jewish diaspora, that there was Israelite diaspora in these locations, we know that there was a persistence of pre-exilic forms of Israelite religion there. Uh, the, there were Judeans who had a temple uh, in Elephantine. And even after that temple was destroyed, historians start, well, historians start to ignore that phenomenon because they're not sure what to do with it. But these ideas don't just vanish when the new ideas associated with Torah, with Jewish scriptures, with worship of one God alone, identification of the supreme God with the creator are brought into the picture. And so my suggestion in the paper is that uh, Gnosticism could emerge out of that particular tradition, one that increasingly sees these scriptures imposed, read, talked about in their context, and develops an antithetical way of interpreting them and of reading them, and engages, as we see in the Nagamadi text, engages in essentially a mockery of the creator that he's the supreme God and the only God. And so I think that if we see that 
as at the very least a tributary that contributes to uh, the emergence of Gnosticism, then we can make sense of one of the most puzzling features in a way that actually fits better than anything else I've come across so far. And so that's the gist of the, the paper I read. No, it makes sense. And this was transmitted, so the audience is clear, through the Mandeans because the Mandeans, by their, again, their light beings and all that, seem hint to this pre-exilic uh, Judaism, this sort of more holistic goddess-worshipping Judaism. And one can see some of those same things. People have at least suggested they're there in uh, in the Nag Hammadi texts, but because those are in you know, Coptic and come by way of Greek, some of the linguistic connections are obscured, right? And so there have been plenty of people who asked, well, Sophia, is that wisdom as in you know, wisdom from Proverbs and wisdom of Solomon and the Jewish literature? Um, does she reflect the Israelite goddess, whether Asherah or Anat or one of these figures? But that's been harder to, harder to demonstrate. It's at the level of similarities rather than terminology and naming. Whereas in the Mandayan tradition, some of these names seem to connect with Israelite tradition. And so that seems to provide a key that might allow us to unlock some possibilities that have been there in the Gnostic texts that are already known from other places, just in, in new ways and with, with new angles on them. Makes perfect sense to me. And again, I really enjoyed your paper, Didi Devil Demiurge, The Shared Origins of Monotheism, Evil, and Gnosticism. And of course, you put out a video in your blog page. So I was able to enjoy that too. But let me bring in Vance as somebody sort of uh, to uh, bounce this off as he hasn't read it, uh, but he obviously knows his Gnosticism Vance, Is this making sense to you, or do you have any questions for James? Yeah, it makes sense, because, you know, I was aware of the fact that, um, you know, Judaism wasn't always strictly monotheistic, uh, even the sense, like in Genesis, when they, they speak in the plural, <laughs> then uh, Jehovah speaks in the plural, for example, and there's other other indications. Uh, but, uh, James, I was wondering um, if the literature, the Mandean literature that you're speaking of, do we have available the secret doctrines that the priesthood knew about? And I wonder if we do, if that also sheds light on the origins, you know, of Gnosticism. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And there's actually some really interesting history. The short answer is yes, to a surprising extent. Uh, The longer answer is Well, the longer answer is very interesting. Let me put it that way and share a bit about that. So the Mandaeans are fascinating. One of the things that I find most fascinating about them is the the sheer neglect and lack of awareness of them uh, among scholars of religion, among the general populace. When the Nag Hammadi texts were discovered, made headlines around the world. It's like, look what we found here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, same with the Dead Sea Scrolls. If the Mandayan texts had been previously unknown and then were dug out of the ground today and scholars start looking at them and say, well, what do we have here? It looks like we have texts written in an alphabet that is 
unique to these texts and to some magical bowls. And so maybe it's designed to keep these things a secret within an Aramaic speaking context. Translating them though, and making sense of them once we've deciphered that, we, we figure out that these things are Aramaic texts about familiar figures with resonances with the Nagamadi texts, but with a negative view of Jesus that you don't get in, in those or in Valentinianism or in other, you know, other Gnostic traditions. Usually they either ignore Jesus or have nice things to say about it. And then somebody discovers that in a corner of the world, you know what, there are people who still have these texts and are practicing them or something like, you know, practicing the religion based on them. This would be all over the news. People would be excited, jumping up and down and, you know, pushing each other out of the way to be the ones who get the chance to do interviews and uh, write books about this. And we've known about this for so incredibly long that there's, there's there's a neglect. There was significant interest when scholars thought, well, maybe these will help us make sense of Christian origins and things to do with Christianity. And then when scholars stopped being persuaded of that, they stopped being interested. And it's really, it's really discouraging. But one of the ways that the Mandaean tradition really came to the attention of readers in the English-speaking world was through uh, a particular individual named um, Ethel Stefana Drauer, who was the wife of a British diplomat to Iraq and who got to know this community of Mandaeans there and was fascinated and taught herself an incredible amount. I mean, for somebody who wasn't coming into this as either an anthropologist or a scholar of religion by way of background, you know, not a linguist, not any of the things that would have, you know, equipped one ideally to do the most of this. She taught herself the language and she learned, observed the tradition and did an ethnography and did all these amazing things there. And she translated some of their texts. She also procured copies of many of their texts for the uh, Bodleian Library in Oxford. And that is still the biggest repository of Mandaean texts in any library anywhere. Uh, so we have them in some, some libraries and then we have them in priestly families that own them. And she made such a, a, a fantastic and deep connection with this community, including their priests, and they recognized the value of being known, being appreciated, being understood, of being helped and encouraged by others, that they were willing to allow copies to be made of some of these things. And it was controversial when it happened. And there, were, there were priests who said, well, well you, can't, you can't just divulge these things. You can't just make these things available. And so we have actual manuals. We have um, esoteric texts that talk about the inner mystical meaning of the religious rituals and the significance thereof. And some of these are illustrated with the most fascinating uh, diagrams, pictures of trees, uh, light world figures, uh, all kinds of things. The artwork is very distinctive. And these are often on scrolls, which the whole length of the scroll, you have this imagery accompanying the text. And so what we have is, is fascinating and it's, again, it's much more readily available. And we, we would love to have a priestly manual that went along with the, you know, the text from Nag Hammadi, right? Whether any of those ever 
you know, in, in some form serves that function is not clear. Uh, and if it is, whether it's, it's in the bits that are missing from some of those texts. And so we have, we have some of those things from the Mandaeans, and it's, it's fascinating. And then we can couple that with obs- observation of the ritual as they practice it today, which, of course, we can't do with the, the Coptic Gnostic sources. Yeah, have they dated these scrolls or any of the you know, Mandaean literature, like carbon dating or whatever, were they original? How far, what's the furthest back that we can tell they're from? Right, so the, the, the scrolls themselves and the texts that are in codex form and all these things, I mean, the, the oldest copies that we have are you know, at most maybe a couple of centuries, uh, which is often not uncommon, right? If we think about things like you know, the Gospel of, uh, you know, Gospel of Peter or other things that you know, come to light. Uh, they're not, in almost any case, the original manuscript of these things. Uh, there are right. copies of them. And because this is a living tradition, right, they continue to make copies. In some cases, we we can tell from those copies that they were working with things that had been damaged or fragmented at some point in their past, or things had been combi- compiled so that things that were probably separate at one point are now found on a single scroll. But there's something that these particular texts have that allows them to be dated uh, not with extreme precision, but with at least a greater degree of precision than uh, in the case of a lot of other texts, especially when we, we we don't know how much older it might be than the copy that we have, which might be you know medieval, might be late antiquity, might be whatever. Sometimes we have references to a text and we think, you know, oh, well, that person in the second century talks about a text by this name, therefore, maybe that's it. But, you know, we're still often not sure unless they quote it. What the Mandaean texts have that other texts often don't are what are known as scribal colophons. Uh, those are basically lists of scribes who have copied that text. Because copying the text is considered a sacred act, a meritorious act, what happens is that they would, each one would add their name as they copied it. And so we can trace these back. Sometimes they would say something like, you know, may, you know, may, the, may God repay that uh, terrible ruler named such and such, or you know, things like that. Or you know, copy during the, the time of the cholera epidemic, or things that allow one to to date them. As we get further and further back, we, we have fewer of those kinds of references. But someone who's probably the only scholar to study Mandaism as her primary focus, as a research interest, is Joran Buckley. And she's written a book called Great Stem of Souls, which studies these scribal colophons, these lists of scribes, these scribal genealogies, if you will, the which provide the transmission history of the manuscript and seeks to calculate based on reasonable inferences about how frequently manuscripts tend to be copied, how often they're, how long they're used for before a new copy tends to be made, uh, collating them with one another where the same names appear and tries to trace them back. And she thinks that we can trace the earliest form of some of these texts to the third century of the Christian era. 
the different texts come from different time periods in the Mandaean tradition. And that is something we can also say with a, a reasonable amount of certainty. One of the reasons why scholars of the New Testament and early Christianity lost interest in the Mandaeans is that there were scholars like C.H. Dodd, and I appreciate his work, and so he worked on the Gospel of John, but who said things such as that maybe the Mandaeans just borrowed John from Christianity in order to stay out of trouble with Islamic authorities during the Islamic era. They wanted to have their own prophet, and so they, they picked one that worked for them as a baptizing group. And that simply doesn't work in terms of the linguistic evidence. We have texts that are in their dialect of Aramaic that don't have Arabic loanwords in them, which you don't get in Islamic era texts from Aramaic speaking traditions in the Middle East. We also did in connection with our work on the Mandaean Book of John, which we published. Um, this is something you can find in the commentary explored in more detail. But we did some close analysis of it, both in terms of content, but also in terms of linguistics. And so in terms of content, there are clearly some sections that are engaging with Islam. And one particularly comes to mind where it begins talking about Judaism, and it's talking about the law, and it's talking about circumcision. And then at the end, just out of left field, suddenly says, and the Arabs borrowed circumcision from the Jews, and let's talk about that now. And so it definitely reads as an interpolation, as an addition to that text. But beyond that, the linguistic evidence is, is really interesting because there is a spoken dialect of Mandaic uh, that persists in very, very small representation in the world today, but it's there. And my collaborator on the uh, Mandaian Book of John edition, uh, Charles Heberl of Rut Rutgers University, is a linguist who did his doctoral work on that modern spoken dialect. And so he did a linguistic analysis of chapters, of sections of the Mandaean Book of John, and found that the grammatical structures and grammatical forms, uh, the, the linguistic character changes from chapter to chapter, from section to section. And some are very close to the modern spoken dialect, and so are presumably late, some are much closer to the uh, Peshitta, the Aramaic, you know, the Syriac translation of uh, the New Testament, and of the, um, the Bible. And so clearly go back to ancient times. And so the Mandaean texts show that they are composite and that they've evolved over time. But there are a number of reasons, both linguistic and in terms of the scribal genealogies that point to the third century, maybe, as perhaps a time when, or at least they came into their present form in talking about some of the very earliest of these texts. Very good. Yeah. Well, the fact that they're, yeah, the fact that they're, um, they're, they're tied into John the Baptist seems to indicate to me that they'd go back even further than that, you know? Yeah. So if they have a, a historical connection with John the Baptist, then where did they get that from? And one possible answer is they get it from John the Baptist or they get it from <laughs> followers of John the Baptist. Uh, the question of whether John was a Gnostic has to be kept separate, just as the question of whether Jesus was a Gnostic has to be kept separate. The fact that there are at the very least Gnostic views of Jesus in this time period 
you cannot separate this from the impact of Jesus and of a tradition that goes back ultimately to him. Whether there are hiccups and changes and alterations to the trajectory along the way is a different question. The prominence of John, not as founder of this religion, but as a key historic proponent of this baptism that they practice and of this viewpoint that they have, points to some sort of connection with John the Baptist or with circles around him. Uh, however, differently they may have come to interpret John in later times. Yeah, um, as uh, and this, I think, makes you sort of a, a heretic in academia, <laughs> James, but you write, of course, that uh, Gnosticism is a reaction to monotheism, more like Israel's monotheism. And, of course, then you write, too, that this gave a huge issue with the problem of evil as you went from a polytheist, animist sort of culture to a monotheist culture. And there's like, well, who are going to blame the evil on? The supreme god, rebellious angels, and so forth. Everything goes on a tailspin. But by saying all of this, aren't you saying that Gnosticism is then older than Christianity? Hmm. Possibly. It certainly may be. That is extremely difficult to pin down. And I think a lot depends on what one means by Gnosticism. And one of the negative reactions to my paper was the fact that I didn't forego using the term. Some prefer to avoid it. But you know, there, there's a limitation to how effectively we can talk about things without finding some term, apologizing for the things that are less than apt about it, and yet continuing to speak. Uh, some have tried speaking about Judaisms in the plural when talking about this time period, when there's all this diversity, there's no orthodoxy. Does that help? Um, it certainly captures something that speaking about Judaism in the singular may not, but was there a sense of commonality then? And you, you may be missing something in that. Yeah, that's not the way that any of these ancient authors talk. And so it's still imposing a, a scholarly framework, even if it's one that's attempting to do justice to another aspect of the evidence. But what I'm suggesting is that Gnosticism emerges from that tradition. And so I think it has some roots in ancient Israelite religion. I'm not saying that ancient Israel, right, in the time of the monarchy, was practicing Gnosticism as we meet in Nag Hammadi or something like that. Uh, what I'm talking about is a trajectory. And just as those who work on Christian history know that the time of the Council of Nicaea and the historical Jesus, there's some significant development that takes place. In the same way, we have to do justice to the fact that this is not a static tradition that is simply preserved over time. But I certainly do think that one very plausible scenario is that some of these views that either have taken the form of Gnosticism by this period, this point, or become what we talk about as Gnosticism, were to be found, particularly in those places where Israelites historically dwelled away from control, away from very strong influence that could be exerted by centralized authorities in Jerusalem and Judea. And if we look at John the Baptist, 
his activity in Transjordan, in Samaria, uh, seems to make for a natural connection with that. I think he was drawing on some of those traditions and influenced by them. I think that there were probably also people who had views that John himself may not have held that were among his hearers and interpreted some of the things that he, he was saying within the framework of their own worldview and put the two together. And so it may well be, given how much baptism plays an important role in Gnosticism, and it's not a major component in anything like the same way in pre-exilic Israelite religion, that it is under the influence of John the Baptist that Gnosticism, in something like the form that we come to know and love it from what we'd call Gnostic literature, actually starts to really take shape in that form. No, that makes sense. And one of the biggest slams on the Demiurge is making a parody of his line, I am a jealous God and there is no other but mm-hmm. me, from the book of Isaiah. What insights does do, do we find from that and couching it with the Mendeans and so forth? Yeah, so that's one of those points at which I think the, the Mandean uh, tradition and the Nagamadi tradition, you know, or at least the literature from both these places, really do connect with one another. Uh, in Mandaism, there's less focus on the that phrase from the second part of Isaiah, right, which scholars view as having been composed in the uh, exilic or actually the Persian era when at least some people are starting to return from exile. Of course, they return either with Torah or they put it together you know, upon returning and they're promulgating it in Jerusalem. But one of the things that's a major theme throughout Judaism and into Christianity in its diverse in their diverse forms is that the exile doesn't end with that happening. Jerusalem and the temple may be rebuilt, but the few people who remember the previous one are disappointed with this. There's still a scattering of people and far many more Israelites living elsewhere than now living in their historic homeland. And so there's a sense that things are not right with the world, and that in itself might be a contributing factor. But it also takes some time for these ideas to be promulgated out into those those further reaches. And so I think there's there's a fascinating connection here. Uh, One thing that I think really contributed to me starting to think along these lines is a story that's told, or um, a collection of stories that are told, which seem to be part of a you know, part of a, a larger narrative, but it's given in snippets and fragments here and there. But there are these stories about beings from the light world visiting Jerusalem and meeting with a hostile reception there. Uh, seems to happen quite often. And in one of these accounts, these the demiurge and spirit are talking with one another they you know there's a they take a look at jerusalem they're you know jerusalem is connected with them in fact because it's the city of the jews and the jews are sort of under their control and they discover that a being from the light world has shown up and is maybe going to reveal truth that they don't want to reveal to these people and things like that and so then they they 
basically they they hold a conference and they decide to write the Torah and give it to Moses and have him promulgate it, which seems like almost a parody of what historians think may have happened, which is that you have this Israelite tradition there, and then you have Torah being imposed and other viewpoints being suppressed or eliminated in the process and things like that. And so we don't get exactly the same things in the Nagamadi text and the Mandayan text, but when you put the two together, there seems to be a shared heritage that both are heirs to, that because it's found in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, is probably characteristic of Gnosticism in its earliest form, wherever that was to be found. And there probably was sharing of ideas across this geographic stretch. But it looks like this is a tradition that is found primarily, or is at least predominant in communities of Israelites, I want to say, at the margins of their diaspora, where the promulgation of monotheism, monolatry, Torah, these kinds of things, takes longest to come about and then takes longest to catch on. And speaking of areas, I love in your blog post, James, you talk about this amazing discovery when you went, quote, on an adventure with Google Maps. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I just had always thought about this, but wanted to actually try and make an illustration of it. And so put in like, okay, so where are the major Gnostic figures from antiquity that we know about? And then, you know, where do Israelites spread to, right? And we know they're in Egypt, and we know they're in Mesopotamia. And then put the Mandaeans on the map. And even looking at Mesopotamia, right, Mandaeism is associated more with southern Mesopotamia, which had Jews and Judaism, but was a little bit further away from where the Babylonian Talmud takes shape and where the sort of center of a Jewish community that is much more connected with uh, Palestine, with the Holy Land, with Jerusalem, uh, exists in, you know, in later times. And so as you start dropping these pins into Google Maps, you see that there are these, you know, just these convergences of geography between these two things. That doesn't prove anything, but it certainly does, it, it fits the, the case that I'm trying to make. Yeah, for the audience, you can check it out at his blog post. I will have this on the show notes. And what other hints do we have? Uh, again, I'm looking at all, at your paper. You write, uh, well, in Gnosticism, Yaldabaoth is described as a serpent with a lion's face. Uh, don't you speculate this could be um, part of a pre-exilic Israelite worship of some sort of god or deity? Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I ended up relegating to footnotes because I had you know, 10 to 15 minutes to share this. So you saw the longer version of this, I know. Yeah. Uh, and there's some things that I compressed down there. But there is a serpent deity that is associated with pre-exilic Israelite religion. Right? And those who know the Bible may know it uh, under the name uh, Nehushtan. Right, this uh, serpent on a pole, whether it has some connection with the, you know, the Greek symbol, the symbol that's familiar from, you know, medicine and healing, right? Which of course is the, the function that this 
Paul has in one of the Israelite stories, right, where people are being bitten by serpents and then looking to it and uh, being healed. But of course, people know the medical symbol with the, the serpents and twining around the pole and things of that sort. And it's intriguing that one of the key Mandayan symbols is in fact a, a, essentially a crossbeam with a banner on it that has some resonances both with the, the Christian cross, for those who are familiar with that, uh, particularly as you might see it you know, in you know, Easter week or something like that with, you know, there's a banner or a cloth draped across it, but also resembles the serpent entwined around the pole image. And there's an intriguing bit of evidence related to that. One scholar who's among the few that at least hinted in the direction of what I'm proposing here is Margaret Barker, who happened on some insights, especially because she brought together things that are usually kept separate by discipline and by uh, scholarly compartmentalization. If you work on ancient Israel, you tend not to work on Philo of Alexandria, and you tend not to work on early Christianity. If you do, it tends to be in the context of either Christian interpretation of the authorized Jewish scriptures or uh, teaching a one semester course on the Bible in a primarily teaching institution. But no one was really focused on you know, what was the pre-exilic Israelite religion like that was there and that is changed and transformed by the monotheistic revolution. And then how does that tradition continue to ripple into this later literature? And so as she's explored these things, she's come up with all kinds of fascinating things. But in one of her books, she actually talks about a missionary who went to uh, China. And I can't remember the exact geographic location. I'd have to look it up. But comes across a group that basically are Jews or Israelites, understand themselves as that, and yet have this serpent on a pole that they set up, right, as you know, a symbol of the divine presence when they worship. And the missionary who encountered this speculated this might be something that was a holdover from ancient Israelite religion. And so there too, right, that's a really far spread, but it's not surprising, right? We know that Manichaeism spread to China and persisted there until incredibly recently. And so the possibility that pre-exilic Judaism might have had pockets in some other places is fascinating. But even apart from that, looking at the texts, we see serpent imagery come into the picture. And one thing that I'm really not well poised to answer because I come to this by way of <laughs> Christianity is would we ever have any hope of putting the pieces from Gnosticism and pieces from ancient Israel, uh, archeology span as well as other things together and actually having a clearer picture of what ancient Israelite religion looked like? Because with all these things, we're dealing with jigsaw puzzles from which maybe the majority of pieces are missing and it makes it harder to get a clear sense of what the picture is supposed to be. Yeah, that is true, but it is fascinating. Yeah, Margaret Barker always comes up with some amazing insights every time 
well, any of her books or any of her scholarships. She's, she's incredible. But uh, Vance, is this making sense to you? I know you might have had a question from before, but uh, let us know how we're doing, Vance, if you have questions. Oh, yeah. Well, it's fascinating. And uh, I'm just sitting here trying to figure out all the different connections between the Mandaeans and the Gnostics and so forth. And I was wondering, they didn't really appreciate Abraham or Moses. Is that right, James? That's they correct. They will go back to Noah. Right. So it's interesting. The, uh, the snake on the stick was uh, a mosaic uh, feature. So I guess the Mandaeans didn't really have any, um, well, did they have any direct serpent symbolism? Uh, nothing, nothing comes to mind in the Mandaean tradition. Uh, the, uh, the, the two things that come to mind are you know, the, the Nag Hammadi depiction of Yaldabaoth and the, the uh, crossbeam with the, the banner, which of course is, is not unlike that symbolism. I often wonder whether even in later times there were people who were aware of some of these things, that some of these traditions were not as unknown or forgotten, as you might think. There are surprising numbers of like medieval and Renaissance paintings of John the Baptist, where he has essentially a cross with some kind of flag or banner or twirling garland-like thing around it. But yes, it's, it's entirely possible that, as with some other things, this was something that goes back to before Moses, and there are debates about whether there was a historical Moses, but what, if anything, goes back to Moses, right? I mean, the, the Torah says monotheism goes back to Moses, but a lot of historians think that we simply can't make sense of the lack of acceptance of monotheism, uh, the, the fact that it's simply not even on anybody's radar, nobody seems to be worried about it until so late, if that were the case. And so... I don't know that the association of the serpent on the pole with Moses uh, is something that we we ought to find problematic in relation to that one way or another. Yeah, no, I wasn't thinking that that was a problem. I was just curious. Yeah. One thing I really do want to ask, though, is um, did the Mandaeans give us any better ideas to what John the Baptist actually taught than you know mm. than the New Testament does? Because in the New Testament, John the Baptist is, you know, preaching baptism for re, uh, re, repentance of sins. But mm. the, do the Mandaeans have this concept of sins? Or though, you know, because the Gnostics really didn't see things that way, right? So uh, maybe that's a possible of strong connection between Gnostics and Mandaeans. Yeah. So when you're dealing with later texts, I mean, even, even when we have texts are relatively early, like you know, Josephus and the New Testament Gospels, when they mention John the Baptist, even when they're talking about Jesus, right? And you know, whether they like a figure, whether they're trying to downplay a figure, there's always the possibility of distortion that needs to be taken into account. Uh, the Mandaean texts, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to emphasize in this latest project that's in its early stages, focused on the historical John the Baptist, is that we need to use these sources, unlike those who've dismissed them and set them aside as too late to be of any relevance, but we need to use them more critically than that first generation of scholars that just plugged in these texts and assumed we could treat them as ancient. That said, there are some intriguing things in the Mandaean sources that at the very least resonate enough with the 
New Testament portrait and other ancient portraits that there's reason to think that they are drawing on the same wellspring of tradition. John is a figure who's concerned with you know, social and economic justice, right? He talks about you know, lending money and collecting interest, about uh, marriage and divorce, about these kinds of things. And so the idea that he was a, a person who taught ethics and thought ethics was important, the fact that it comes through in these additional sources might be confirmation of that right? and might give us a clearer impression of what he emphasized, just possibly. When it comes to his baptism, bringing Mandayan baptism into the picture really does change how we see things in really, really important ways. If the Mandayan tradition reflects what John did and so preserves something historical, then all the more so. But even just as a baptizing religion, how it's different from Christianity raises some intriguing possibilities. So one difference between Mandayan baptism and Christian baptism is that in Mandaism, baptism is not a one-time conversion ritual. It is a repeated rite, which people undergo regularly, frequently throughout their lives, as often as they, they can, and it's seeking forgiveness. It's seeking to connect with the light world above. It's seeking to prepare oneself to make the journey uh, in one's spirit to the realm above and hopefully not have to spend one's time in these purgatories, these like way stations that one will encounter along the way where one is liable to be tortured before making it through to the light world because of evil, because of wrongdoing. And that repeated baptism, I think, makes better sense as what John's baptism might have been like. One thing that scholars, even just working on the New Testament or on the historical John the Baptist, have proposed from time to time is that John's baptism may have been an alternative to sacrifice. And describing it as a baptism for the forgiveness of sins would fit that. Right? That's what sacrifice was for. That would tie in potentially with John's concern for social and economic justice. Right? Even affording the less expensive sacrifice option where one is required is still difficult and much, much more difficult if you're poor. Water is open to everyone. And so I think John's baptism may have been an alternative to sacrifice, an alternative way of obtaining forgiveness, and I have some ideas about what might have inspired that, which we can maybe come back to. But this, I think, explains why when Christianity turns baptism into a one-time act of conversion and of union with Jesus in his death and resurrection and things of that sort, suddenly, almost immediately, you have the early church debating whether you can be forgiven for sins that take place after baptism. And it's surprising. It's like, didn't you think about this as you were developing this right? As you were developing this theology? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Why is this suddenly, you know, you seem to be caught off guard by it. If they've taken something that was a repeated act for the forgiveness of sin and adapted it into something that's once for all, a one-time thing, then suddenly this problem emerges. And so I think that because we've tended to approach John's baptism through the lens of Christian baptism, 
we've missed a possibility that the Mandaean texts and lived tradition uh, suggest to us as an alternative. Excellent. So, James, where can people find out more about you? And is your paper, Deity, Devil, Demiurge, The Shared Origins of Monotheism, Evil, and Gnosticism, is that available to the public? Uh, the paper is not available simply because we're uh, looking to put together a, a volume of conference papers, and so I expect they want to have it fleshed out, developed fully, and then go in print. Uh, I always try to make sure that things that I publish are available open access in some way, shape, or form, if at all possible. Uh, sometimes that's possible immediately. Sometimes it's possible only after a year has passed or something like that. But just as we sought to do with the Mandaean Book of John, so too with other papers that I've written, I've tried to make those things available. And so I do have a, I do have a repository of uh, what's what are known as selected works. It's that's the just the name of the the platform uh, the Butler University Libraries uses to maintain this repository. But things that I've written about Mandaism as well as other subjects are available on there, and. There, plus my uh, my blog, and I'm on the blog and on YouTube and on Twitter, all with the same handle, which is religion prof. And so if you type it in as one word, religion prof, especially if you add James McGrath, you'll, you'll find me somewhere. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, for the audience, I highly recommend you subscribe to his blog. Again, it's a, a great uh, mixture of religious insight, uh, cool sci-fi expositions that talk some of my favorite shows like Star Trek and Doctor Who, and they're, as he said, their intersection with religion. So, yeah, check out that Gnosis. But we are at the end. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for keeping us company on this journey. Oh, it's my pleasure as usual, and uh, very fascinating to hear about the Mandaeans. That's, I was really appreciative of that. Indeed. And uh, James, thank you so much for your time and for writing this paper and for everything you do and for coming on Aeon Byte. My pleasure. It's been wonderful talking with you. And there you have it, my beloved True Seekers. The first part of our interview with James McGrath. It only gets better in our second part. James will cover the towering figure Simon Magus. He'll share some of the rituals and magic of the Mandeans and how they relate to other Gnostic and Jewish groups. He'll also share the, how the idea of fallen angels falls into this grand drama. We'll get into the intriguing Mandean cosmology and also address the reason why the Mandeans place Jesus as a villain in their history and much more. As a bonus for patrons and AB Prime members, I'll include a past interview with Andrew Phillips Smith on his book, John the Baptist and the Last Gnostics, so you get a complete picture of the Mandeans. So please become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for all this heretical wonder and so many other cool bonuses and rewards and become part of a growing Gnostic community with invites to our private Facebook and Discord. We've only just begun in our work for the God of Thieves and the Goddess of Smugglers. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you'll get your spirit back. Please go to my homepage, the God Above God Dead Cam, 
or means to support or join or just message my ass. The topics and guests will remain as engaging and intense the rest of summer. But I can always use help as we fight with our sister Sophia to restore all divinity in this broken universe where men have nipples and those leatherettes are still warm. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. Hello and goodbye as always.